Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. We need to focus here, people. Focus. Thank you, Lord God, for Sabbath rest and for work to fill our week. Thank you for the sacraments and the sacred words of Scripture and the fellowship of your body. Deliver Redeemer out of the darkness of unbelief. Let us lift up the name of God in praise. Let us be renewed in communion with you, washed in your word as your faithful bride, altered in heart and mind by grateful praise to you. Let us be prepared for action, molded as a tool for the tearing down of strongholds and the building of your kingdom. Let Christ shine in our eyes and may the power of your spirit flow through us to the world. Bless our fellowship, our songs, our words of adoration and supplication, our hearing and our doing. Bless our worship service and all our preparations for it. May our worship honor you and delight you, and may we be transformed by it. In Christ and as Christ and for Christ, amen. Amen. So really, um, ever since the first week of this, I've really just been explaining essentially one verse. One verse. And that's found in John chapter 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That's what this has been about. It's been about going. It's been about fruit, fruit that abides, fruit that lasts, doesn't wither. And so everything I've done up till today has been... um, to convince you, essentially, that you live in a ghetto. I, I thought that was the hardest task that I had. Uh, ghettos of self, ghettos in your families, ghettos in, in this community at large. I, I felt that was the thing I needed to really hammer hard to convince you. Because now, here in your ghetto, I would like to explain to you how to get out. That's really what this was all about. How do you get out of it? But as we all know, it's very, very difficult to convince someone of a cure if they don't know they're sick. Um, right? If I don't feel like my cholesterol is too high, I'm not going to do anything to avoid the cholesterol. Correct? If you don't really believe you're in a ghetto, I show up here uh, while Dean's gone in the hot sun, and I try to explain to you how to get out of it. And, you're, and most of you would probably say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't live in a ghetto. So therefore, we had to listen for three, we- three weeks about our ghettos. God has equipped you. He's called you. That's what this has been about. What does it mean that he's called us? What does it mean that he's equipping us? And, and if he has, why aren't we going? That seems like a legitimate question. Um, are we? Right? I, I, I think I don't need to repeat most of what I've said over the last three weeks because it's obvious. We live, unfortunately, in ghettos. And now, thus saith the Lord, this is the way out. Follow me. John 15, 16 says, we learn that Jesus has called us and equipped us to go and bear fruit. This is stated earlier in the same passage, but differently. In John chapter 15, verse 12, love others as I have loved you. He's saying the same thing. I've called and equipped you to go and bear fruit that abides. I have loved you, love others. It's the exact same thing. By loving us, he's called us. By loving us, he's equipping us to do what? Love others. That's what bearing fruit that abides means. We stand before the Father with the same mission in the world that Jesus had. We have a common goal, and we do it shoulder to shoulder because we are Jesus' friends. Now, I, I think this is, cannot be sta- overstated. 
We are his friends. I, I get it that we're Calvinists. I get it that we're Reformed. Jesus is the Lord. Watch me. I could do a whole thing on that. Lordship, Lordship, Lordship. But what we lose in that is the fact that we are friends. We are co-heirs. We stand with him before the face of God. That's something that we need to wrap our heads around. I do not need to convince anyone here that you're his servant. I do feel like I need to convince us that we are, in fact, his friend. And what are friends? If you don't know what friends are, well, next week, the last sermon, that's what next week's all about, what a friend is. But Jesus is our friend. I think we know intuitively what a friend is. And we need to start thinking about him that way. Otherwise, we're going to remain in ghettos. How do we know that he's our friend? Well, he says, I've loved you, therefore go and love others. And what's, what's the greatest example of love? Dying for your friends. So right there in that transaction, we get we're his friend. He's loved us, and he's loved us in, in, the, in the highest possible form, a friend laying his life down for friends. This is key for us to get. But he goes on and he says in John fifteen fifteen, we know we are his friends because mere servants don't know what their master's plans are. Okay? In, in history, no duke ever went to his footman and, and brought him into his confidence. Okay? No duke went to his footman and said, hey, what do you think we ought to do about this? That, that didn't happen. I work for King County. Uh, the King County executives get together, and they decide what they're going to do, and they tell me my portion to do. Now, if I, right, because I'm their servant. Now, if I was invited into the room to hear the plans and gave my opinion, when I left the room, I would not feel like their servant. I'd feel like their peers. It's good that they don't bring me in there, right? <laughs> so he says, I, I, I've, I've brought you into my confidence, you're not servants. You know exactly what I'm going to do. And what is he going to do? Love the world. It's what he did when he was walking around on the earth. It's what he did before the incarnation through all of history. It's what he does. He loves the world. His plan has never changed. It's never changed. And now, it's your plan. It's your mission. His mission is your mission. The mind of God is open to us. In John 15, 15, he also says this. He says, I've opened the, God, the mind of God to you. Now think about that for a moment. Think about that. If you're married, if you have a close friend, if you have a, a sibling, if you have a parent that you're close to, think about what that means when they open their mind to you. They say things to you they wouldn't say to anyone else. They tell you what their biggest fears are. They tell you what's going on inside of them. They tell you what you're afraid of. They tell you what's, what, they, what you think about everything. This is what opening your mind to another person is. And, and our friend does that for us. He opens the mind of God to us. It, it lays open before us if we're willing to open it. And what is the master plan? What is the master plan in the mind of God that is open to us? Selfless love. That's the plan. I, we want bigger plans than that, don't we? we? We would love it if Jesus showed up here and he said, listen, I've got this briefcase from God the Father and it's these maps and it's about how we're going to take over the world. It's how we're going to get some new Supreme Court justices. It's amazing. But that's not his plan. His plan is as simple as this, selflessly loving others, laying your life down for others. Now, that to me makes life much easier. Doesn't it? No, it doesn't? Think, but let's think about this. It, it, it makes it easier in this way. 
I'm standing there and my son is standing there and there's one piece of bacon left. Do I need to know, does it have anything to do with Supreme Court justices or, or the, the inner workings of power at that point? It's a simple choice about selflessly loving the person right in front of me. This is what I think is so profound about the Christian faith. It's simple. It's simple. It's too simple. Because when it comes down to it, if you're going to get over in this lane, or are you going to let that other person remain in the lane? Are you going to cut them off? I mean, it, it, that, it's very simple at that point what God wants you to do. But what we do is we forget all that. That's just everyday nonsense. That has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. We want to know about Supreme Court justices. Right? Everybody wants to take over the world, but nobody wants to help mom with the dishes. This is the classic line, and it's true. I've got myself as an example. I have the boys. Right? I will sit in my office all day long and make plans to change the world, and I won't do anything to help with the dishes because this is what we're like. We want the big, flashy, sexy idea. We don't want the simple plan, and the simple plan is to selflessly love others. It's as, as apparent as the nose on my face. So as we're going to go through all of this, what's the problem then? If the mind of God is open and the plan is really that simple, what's the problem? Why isn't it that simple? Many of us are like Martha from that story last week in Luke, who's frantically going around, busily working. She's all nervous. She's all agitated. She's not selflessly serving. That's not the point. She wants Jesus to know, hey, I'm doing this. What, what about my sister Mary? Well, Mary has chosen the better portion. She's sitting at Jesus' feet because she knows that's really what Jesus wants. Now, wait a minute. Didn't you just say selfless love? Didn't you just say serving people is what Jesus wants? Yes, I did. But many of us rise up like Martha instead of like Mary. Mary is going to go on from sitting at Jesus' feet, and what kind of love do you think she's going to show the world? Martha, who's frantic and anxious and busy and, and is just flying around trying to get things done in the business of life, how, how is she doing? Where, where does it begin? See, what I like about that story is you can't just get on to the serving without knowing what Jesus has to say. Because this is what we do. We jump out of bed like Martha and we just get to the serving. Right? The kids got to get ready for school and we got to make husband's breakfast and we, we got to make sure this is done and that is done and this is done. All the while, we've missed the fact that Jesus, as it says in Philippians, is at hand and, and he is our friend and we've utterly ignored him. The friendship that we have with Jesus Christ has to become the most important relationship in our lives, something that we come back to again and again and again throughout the day because he's there. And who is he? Who is he? And, and he's there at our, at our right hand all day. But like, like many people, we're out with our friend watching over their shoulder the, the TV in the sports bar, right? I'm not really sure what this guy's talking about. He's having some kind of problem with his wife. Oh, look, golf. I'm, I say that. I don't even like golf. It's amazing how sports will get my attention no matter what even crappy sport it is, like golf. But this is what we're like, right? I will ignore almost anybody if sports is on, and, and we're like this, right? I, I, again, I, I, you go out. How many times do you see it now where you're sitting somewhere and you see a couple eating, and, and they both or one of them got a phone in their face that are ignoring the other person? We go through our whole day like this. The most important relationship you have is not your children, it's not your parents, it's not your spouse, it's Jesus. 
and it's a, it's a friendship. And so how do you improve friendships? That, that's, that's what we have to ask ourselves. Now, I want to back up for a moment. This is going to be one of those days where I've got to really be careful. I want to back up for a moment. I want to explain something about this face-to-face relationship because what does that mean to have a face-to-face relationship with him, right? He's here right now with us. Can someone please point to him? No, right? He's not, he's not here in the same way that you are here. He's actually here in, in, a, in a more powerful, more present way because the breath of life was breathed out from God into, your, into you and that you have God the Spirit in you. You were made in and through Jesus and for Jesus. So you're held together right now by him. It's like fish in water. A fish in water can't explain what it means to be wet. So this, we need to come down for a moment and, and re, retrain ourselves for awe. The, the idea of like we, we are in Christ and held together in Christ and, and God lives in us and then we become a Christian and he, he lives in our hearts in another in a, in a special way and we lose this. We lose the ever-present sense of God. And, and so that is a truth that we need to hold on to. Okay? Your spirit is knit together with his spirit. That's what it means to be a friend. And, and because they are, you can have this face-to-face relationship. Let's consider for a moment 2 Corinthians 4.6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let light shine out of darkness. That God who said that, he said, let there be light. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We cannot point to Jesus sitting in this room. What what I find fascinating is that none of us pointed at this. This was not what any of us thought to do. Oh, he's right there. Again, this is, this is complicated, isn't it? What do you, he's right there. That's, that's not an eternal God. That's a book. Well, but the God dwells in our hearts so that beholding this, we behold the face of God. How many of you have ever read scripture and actually felt like you were beholding the face of God? Like there was an eminent personal God sitting there with you. Because that's what happens when the Spirit of God is in you and you're reading Scripture. Now, it doesn't happen every time, right? This is what this whole three weeks has been about. Sometimes we're sitting down and it doesn't seem like he's there. The problem isn't with the books. The problem isn't with him. He hasn't gone anywhere. You've gone somewhere. The veil has been pulled back and we've replaced the veil with all kinds of other things. We're like, right? I mean, if uh, it's like a dead body. You take a, something and cover it because it's horrifying to you. That's often how we do what we do with the scriptures because there's a disconnect. There's a death in the relationship because of sin and because we don't deal with it, we cover up the face of God because it's, it's too troubling to us. We don't like silence. We don't like to just sit there and listen to what he has to say because we're afraid of what he's going to say. So what we have to do is we have to deal with the sin in our lives. And once we do that, we open up the word of God and he's there. He's right there in front of you. The words of God are the face of God. Titus 2, 11, 13, and 14. This is one I, I've actually preached this particular verse three times, I think, in this congregation. I can't get enough of it. It says this, For the grace of God has dawned, 
bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So let's go back for a second. God dwells in our hearts so that we can look into the face of God and see the light of God. We can behold his face, and, and that is grace. That grace is dawned. It's brought salvation to us, the fact that we can see the face of God, and it trains us to live godly lives in the present age. This is how it works. This is what this whole sermon is about. You are already God's friend. He is your friend. Now, there, there might be something covering his face, and what it, he didn't put it there. You did. And if you dealt with that, it's removed, and what you behold by looking into the scriptures is the face of the very God of the, of the universe who made everything. Now, and when you do that, that grace, that light, doesn't just let you see, it lets, like, see him here, it lets you see everything. Right? Light and understanding in, in scriptures is the same thing. Light helps me see this book. The grace that it puts in my mind helps me see God everywhere. You can see the grace of God in people's lives. You see the grace of God that comes to you in everything that comes to you. That's how you see the grace. By beholding in this book. And he's removed the veil. He's done it. Through our habitual sins, we have actually covered it up so that we can't see him there. Because we're it makes us uncomfortable because there's things in our lives that he hates. There's things in, his, in our lives that are ruining the friendship. So the question now, um, what do we do about it? I mean, that, I've been working up to this sermon because we do live in ghettos. Because the, the face of God is covered up. But I do not want us to live there any longer. this is not good for you, it's not good for me, it's not good for this church, it's not good for the kingdom of God. He said, I tell you everything that the Father has told me, and in it, your joy, you find joy, and my joy is complete. So going all, this is, we need to stop and sit down and think about these things. I don't have joy because I don't have money. I don't have joy because I have marital problems. I don't have joy for this or that or whatever reason. Joy isn't found in those things. Joy is found in the face of God. And if you have that joy, you can go out and you can see the world differently. You see it like he saw it. You do the things that he did. I think that was the longest introduction I've ever had. It says right here, tell the joke, lighten the mood. I did that. So after that intense opening, because I can't help myself from being intense, we're going to talk about something that I, that I briefly touched on last week. But it, it's Bible reading and prayer. Say it with me, Bible reading and prayer. Bible reading and prayer. It's as simple as that. Now, like I said earlier, it's that simple. And many of us go... I mean, really? Really? I, I want to make it sexy again. I'm, I'm not kidding. I say that in exactly the way that it sounds. I want to be like the Puritans. I want to make that the thing that we get behind. I want to make that the thing that is spicy about us. Because it is. 
you go back through the Christian church, this is what sets things on fire. This is what just creates chaos for the world out there that they can't deal with. It creates light. It creates life. It creates joy. It cre- it's an explosion of a kind of community that many of us have only tasted a little bit. And it's found here. And it's really that simple. And I'm getting all intense again. So let's move on to habits. What are habits? I, another thing that is so simple, most of us um, don't think about it. And this, uh, I was going to do this series. I've been playing on this series for two years. And right at the very end, because he works this way, Dean gives me this book on habits and th- says this might help you. And, and, and it actually was the most helpful thing. <laughs> helpful thing after two years of thinking about this. It, it was the difference maker. Because it's a, it's, our problem is simple. It's as simple as repentance. It's as simple as prayer. It's as simple as Bible reading. Because habits is what makes up most of our day. Most of our day is, is a habit. It's a series of habits or individual habits uh, that we do this one and then this one or a bunch of habits. I have several at work where I, you know, I do one thing. I enter one thing into the computer, and it requires a set of habits sitting on my desk and a set of habits at the printer and a set of habits in the office, in the judge's office. And that string of habits is itself one big habit, right, that takes like 45 minutes. But this is what our lives are like. How, wives, if you make bread, doing laundry, it's a bunch of small sort of cycles that you go through. This is Most of our lives are, are broken down this way. Most of what I'm going to say in this point is taken from a book called The Power of Habit. Uh, it's very scientific, um, but it's very, very helpful. There is a small habit center in your brain called a basal ganglia. I, they got to get better people to name these things. Seriously. We've lost the ability of Western modern science to have poetic understanding of the things we're talking about. Basal ganglia sounds like something I order at like an Indian restaurant. There is this center in your brain where habits live. They, they, they have, at, at this point now, proven it. It's, it's a central location in your mind where your, your habits live. This is why um, certain kinds of brain damage, uh, you can have damage in certain portion of your brain where you can't remember your grandkids, but somehow you can tie your shoes. Uh, other people have da- damage in the basal ganglia, and they remember everything about everybody, but you've got to feed them with a fork because like, they can't do it themselves anymore. It, it's, it's stunning. It, it's the basal ganglia. Now, what it does is it recalls patterns. Okay? It, it recalls patterns using cues and rewards. And what it does is it makes a habit loop, and it recognizes a cue. It sets off the habit loop so that your mind just lets you function, like do the, pro- the thing that you're trying to do while the rest of your mind doesn't have to actually think about the process. Like, how many of you think through the process of tying your shoes? How many of you think through the process of brushing your teeth, uh, getting ready for bed? I mean, think of, it's, it's endless. And if you had to actually stop and think through all of those processes, your brain would be exhausted. And so this is why God gave us this magnificent little thing called, a, of all things, basal ganglia, in your mind that creates these habit loops. It simplifies your thinking and gives, you, um, gives your mind energy to keep going throughout all the, through the day. Now, let's just for a moment think about getting in the car, backing out, and driving down the road. This is everything that I, I had to do in order to do that. Unlocking the car door, inserting the key into the ignition, turning it clockwise while applying a particular amount of pressure to the brake, 
buckling up, adjusting mirrors, defrost radio, checking for obstacles, moving the gear shift into reverse, removing foot from brake and applying just enough pressure to put car in reverse while measuring distances, speed, and angles. That is everything that I have to do just to get out of the driveway. And what, what happens is your brain, as soon as the key goes into the door to unlock it, well, I never lock my door, so as soon as the key goes in the ignition, <laughs> right, it kicks in. And they've done these studies. It's amazing. The brain level, like it, how busy it is, drops down to almost nothing when, when your basal ganglia is engaged. And, it, and then it gets you through the process, and there's usually a reward. Sometimes it's very, very simple. I'm driving forward down the street towards work. That's the reward. So it kicks off, and suddenly, have you guys ever had this moment? How did I get, how did I get to this intersection? <laughs> right? Mile, home, home is like a mile and a half that way. Or moms, right? You're doing laundry, and before, you're like, was that really just 35 minutes? If you're my wife, three hours, right? You, you start to do something that you do all the time, and your brain makes a pattern out of it. It recognizes the cues, kicks in, and, and this is called the habit loop. Now, what's amazing about this is there is a cue and a reward, and that's how it knows what's what. Okay, the cue turns it on, and the reward turns it off. So if you know, if you want to create a new habit, what you have to control then are the cues and the rewards. Now, say, hypothetically, you wanted to start jogging but your habit really is sitting on the couch and eating Cheetos. Well, not only do you have the hard work of starting a new habit loop, you actually have to stop an old habit loop. Uh, and, and this is an example last week. I used to smoke, and I drank coffee. I had to give up drinking the coffee while I was trying to quit smoking because I couldn't do the two things at once. Still to this day, and this is how the basal ganglia works, is it, it lives there. I came out of a Starbucks drinking the coffee. I smelled the cigarette smoke, and I threw the coffee away because I will end up at AMPM buying, like, marble lights uh, in a heartbeat here because it just it triggers something in my mind. And so now what I want to do is drink the coffee and smoke the cigarette because that's, that's the habit I used to have. And, and so what you have to do is you have to control the cues and the rewards. Now, what's also very important is the basal ganglia is not moral. It cannot tell the difference, okay, between watching NC-17 movies and praying. It can't tell the difference between coveting, say, if that's your habit, and reading your Bible. It, it doesn't know. It just does what you train it to do. It's subservient to you. And so, again, if you can control cues and rewards. Now, let, let's talk about this for a moment. What's the first thing you do in the morning when you wake up? If you're anything like me, the habit has been... This bad boy right here. I get up, and this is what I do. And how does it start? Well, the alarm goes off, and it doesn't tell me to wake up. It tells me to start looking on my iPhone. <laughs> I'm fairly, I, I, I believe that, because I don't really wake up for like an hour. What it does is it gets me going on this. And I'm, there I am, wasting all kinds of time in the morning. So how about you don't use this to wake up? How about you get an old-fashioned alarm clock? Different cue. Then you just put your Bible right there by the bedside. Or, if you have a spouse who's sleeping... Okay, let's make a new cue. Let's get up out of bed and go to make coffee. And there under your coffee cup is your Bible. Now, if you do that, you get that cue going, what happens? Every time you're going to make coffee, what's going to happen? Right, you want to start jogging? Put your jogging clothes right in the doorway as you leave your bedroom. Uh, there was a study, again, a woman did this. This is what she did. She started jogging after seven months. Her husband got up, tripped over the clothes, kicked him out of, the, out of the way. The wife the next morning got up and went back to her old process because the cue wasn't, I mean, 
we are, we are like that simple. That, that's how quick it takes to go back to, because the old cues are there. So understanding your habitual sins is very important in this. Okay, everyone, again, we're going to really wail down on the phones. Everyone take out an, your iPhone. Everyone who has an iPhone, take it out. Come on now. Dig deep. Click settings. I'm going to, no, no, we're going to do something else. Go down to battery. Click battery in your settings. Okay. Okay, if it's an Android, this doesn't apply to you. Okay, are you guys in battery in settings? Okay, scroll down. You see there where it says last 24 hours, last seven days. Click last seven days. Oof, that's how you've been spending your battery life. That's, that's how you spend your time on the phone. Now, for me, uh, I, I, I won't make you guys do this without being a good example here. The first one is music. Earlier this morning, it was 54 hours in the last seven days. Uh, and again, I covered that last week. I don't like silence. Uh, the next one after that is Safari, but I use Safari to go on Facebook. I use Safari to do all kinds of things. That's the second one. 22% of my battery life in the last seven days. 22%. Unfortunately, it tells you how many hours, too. Now, my question is, what are the cues to get you to waste that much time on Candy Crush? <laughs> or whatever. I mean, whatever. Right? Something gets you there. What is it? How can you change it? Control the cues and control the rewards. Now, I mean, I've read very funny things about this. There are people who want to work out and they want to control the rewards. So, so they um, go jogging and they come home and they eat a Snickers bar. Okay, that, that's good, except they realized that the Snickers bar, had the calorie content was higher than what they were burning when they were... <laughs> so if you're going to do something like that, find out how many calories it is, right, and make sure that your workout is actually worth it because at that point you're just wasting your time. So what are things you can control, right? This is what it means to renew your mind. I, I love this kind of thing about the scriptures. The Bible says renew your mind. R.C. Sproul has made a life, his life's work based on this idea. God bless him. But it, it means something more than mere intellectualism. It means something more than just reading truth. Your mind is a very complicated thing. It controls what you do. Control it, and you control what you do. Does this make sense? God made us rational beings. And if you're rational beings, we're not only rational beings, but if you are rational beings, that means you can think through things. What are the cues you need to stop right now? What are the cues you need to start? What are the rewards you need to stop? What are the rewards you need to start? Um, what's funny about this is there are certain things where uh, the rewards sometimes, that, that isn't as important as the cues. Because we all know the reward of if we read our Bibles and prayed more, but it's not enough to get us over the hump. Uh, everyone knows uh, the, the rewards of por pornography, but that doesn't often seem to be enough to get people to stop. Right? The cues in that case are what matters. Because sometimes those things, the cue and the process are so powerful that it, that's what you have to control. Uh, here's another example. I like this one. If, if you don't pray enough with your wife or read the Bible with her enough, plan to make out for 20 minutes after you're done. Not family worship. That would be weird. <laughs> okay? Another one is, um, again, I got a, Apple products to kill me. I get up in the morning and I'm going to read my Bible, sanctify here, on my iPad, and I can never make it. It's like the zombie apocalypse of distraction. 
Right? I open it, open it up, and there's like 50 icons staring at me. I've got to open the folder that says Bible reference, and then I've got to find the Bible, and I can never ma- seem to make it there. It's like a labyrinth I can't make it through. So you know what I did? Is I, I got an old-fashioned Bible, <laughs> and, and I hide the iPad before I go to sleep, because in the morning when I'm sleepy, I can't even find it now. I just Right there are the books, right where I sit every morning. Uh, that, that was my test on this. I, I did that, and right there they are, and every time I see them, it's amazing how easy it is just to sit down and do it. Uh, all of life is like this. Renew your minds. Renew that basal ganglia. And, and here is the most important habit that you can have. The most important habits that you can have are Bible reading and prayer. Now, why? Why? What do they actually do? I have this long, intense introduction, but for you, in your, in your everyday life, why? What, why would they be the most important things that you can do? Well, if we have a face-to-face relationship, right, if we want to sit at the feet of Jesus like Mary, interacting with God, this is how you do it. Because the words of God are him communicating with you, and prayer is us communicating with him. That's called dialogue, my friends. Now, we tend to put Bible reading over here, and prayer over here. I think that's a mistake. I think that's a huge mistake. I think that if we brought the two things together, both of them would be easier to do. Because what do we usually do when we want to pray? It's a honey-do list for our husband. Hey, bud, when you got some time this Saturday, could you get to the lawn? <laughs> right? If you're not too busy, could you save so-and-so because they're real sick? I mean, that, that right? Or we treat God like a vending machine, as I like to say. We just A4. I want the Snickers bar. But if, if you took Bible reading and God speaks to you, and then you immediately talk to him about what he said, it seems to me that what, there would be a dialogue aspect that would come into this. If these were habits that we had on a regular basis, there are verses in the Bible that mystify us that would cease to mystify us. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 Pray without ceasing. Now, if it's true that God speaks to us in this, and when you read this, you find out he doesn't just speak, this isn't the only place he speaks to you. It's amazing. The sun is shining. He's speaking to you. You manage to work on time. He's speaking to you. You had enough money to pay rent. He's speaking to you. You go to the grocery store and you can actually afford what you're buying. He's speaking to you. You see the butterflies. You see the flowers. You see the rain. You see the thunderstorm. He's speaking to you. Okay, but that's complicated. Let's simplify it. Okay? If you read this all the time, and he's talking to you all the time, praying without ceasing is easy, isn't it? The problem is that we can't bring ourselves to listen to what he has to say. That's the habit that we we just don't have. Psalm 119, 147 through 148. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. The psalmist wakes up in the watches of the night and meditates on the promises of God. Now, do you think as the day goes, he's going to have a lot to say to God as it goes? He's going to have a lot to pray about. If he's contemplating, which we're going to come back to in a moment, the promises of God and their vastness, your mind is full of things to say to God. And making it personal, I think, would really go a long way to healing a lot of the wounds that we have. Okay, say hypothetically you're sitting down and you're reading to yourself Romans chapter 8, 
I don't even know where it is. Yeah, Romans chapter 8, verse 30, I think it is. 30 through 33, where it says that, you know, you're called, you're foreknown. If you stop and you think about all of those things, it's a huge pearl. Of ne- it's, it's like a pearl necklace. I'm, I'm, I was foreknown, I was called, I was justified, I'm sanctified, and I'm going to be glorified. You don't just sit down and read that like it's a, like it's a novel. This is where prayer and, and reading the word come together. I'm foreknown by you. I am called by you. You justify me. You are sanctifying me. You are glorifying me. I can testify with a great deal of passion. That is a totally different way of reading the Bible. I went from sitting down and reading it like I read everything else to having this kind of dialogue, and it has made all the difference. In the beginning was the Word. You were there with God the Father. What was that like? Tell me what that was like. That must have been amazing. What, what did you see? How did that make you feel? See, when I engage in the Word that way, that's like talking to a friend. Right? How many of us have a friend who comes back from a big fishing trip and just listen, and they tell the story? Right? Do we just listen, or do we usually ask questions? Do we usually engage? Oh, you know, that reminds me of this one time I... Well, what was that like? Tell me more about that part. That's how you talk to a friend, and that's how Jesus is hoping that we talk to him. And you do it through taking Bible reading and prayer and putting them together. Now, there are um, an endless number of ways, endless number of ways, to get Bible reading into your lives. The the question is, do you want to? I, I believe you do. And so what we need to do is grab hold of the cues. You have a phone, okay? If, if you're going to continue to use it, <laughs> I almost feel like just having a basket in the back and we all put it in there, a fruit basket full of apples. I, I wish we would do that, but we're not going to do that. But how about you take your phone? It has reminders. A certain time of the day, you pray for so-and-so. A certain time of the day, you read a scripture. You can actually type in to the reminder what you want to be reminded of. Uh, I have three apps at different times of the day that tell me to read my Bible. I, at work, this is the old-fashioned one, I, everyone is always asking me what these stickies are with people's names on them. And I'm like, oh, they're defendants I'm keeping an eye on. Well, no, it's the people I'm praying for. <laughs> this particular guy here is real trouble. No, I'm kidding. Right? I have these stickies, and they have people's names on them, and I pray for those people because there I am, and I see the, the sticky, and I'm, it reminds me. There's... Um, I mean, I, I want to take this big for a moment. There's, there's a website called Bible Mesh. It's Bible classes. I know none of you are in seminary. I don't care. But if you want to know more about the Word of God, take a class there. Go to Legionnaire Connect. It's a monthly thing. It's very cheap. You take all the R.C. Sproul classes to the point where you, his voice will annoy you. I mean, you can fill yourself up with R.C. Sproul on Legionnaire Connect. There's something called He Reads Truth and She Reads Truth. Um, it started for ladies, but it, it's a Bible study. Uh, they do his and hers. They do couples ones. Uh, and what I like about it is you op- it's so easy in the morning. You open it up, and it has everything you're supposed to read, and a part where you write a response. Then it has these little business-sized cards you pop out that are really actually very f- durable, and you carry them in your pocket, and as you go, you memorize the verses that they're talking about. You can buy them. It's called He Reads Truth, She Reads Truth. I could go on and on and on. There's audio Bibles you can listen to on apps. There's CDs you can get from the library. You can get um, Tim Keller videos and watch them at home. Here's an idea. 
You could do a book study at your house. I'm an elder. I'm telling you that that's p- perfectly permissible. There may have been some confusion in the past about whether we allow that kind of thing. That's nonsense. I'm here to tell you if you want to do that, do it. Do it. I'll buy the Bibles. Right? I'll buy the books. You want to do it? Come and tell me what it is, whatever the book is, and I will buy them for you. You want to do a Tim Keller video series at your house on Saturdays? Do it. Do you want a prayer partner? Ask somebody, right? We need to engage in better cues for this process. If you had a prayer partner or a, a reading the Bible partner, which you could also do, there's the cue to ask the question. Or there's the cue to hide, which then leads, I think, to a very helpful conversation. <laughs> I mean, the most, the most um, wonderful community I've, uh, experience I've ever had was the Petries, I think most of you know them, used to have us over every Friday when, when we were um, young people. And, and we studied the book of John in their home. And, and, and Paul Petrie would lead on guitar, and anybody who was invited would come, and everyone would just bring things. And, and yes, there were lots of kids. Um, that's never really bothered me. Uh, I understand how crazy that can be for moms. That's always the problem, because they always tend to latch onto her. But I remember how crazy it was. And you know what? It was kind of cool. Uh, I wish I was as good as, as uh, Paul Petrie because he somehow always worked the chaos into the conversation. I don't know how he did it. He was magnificent that way. But what do you need to do? What's the cues? What are you lacking? Okay, Jesus said, right, on the road to Emmaus, he tells his, his um, disciples, he explains himself from all of Scripture. So if all of Scripture is about him, if Job is about him, and the story between Tamar and Judah is about him, awkward. If the story about the Lamentations is about him, about the ark going into exile is about him, there, isn't there a lot that we have to read about? Isn't there a lot of ways that he expresses himself? Right? How could you ever get tired of that conversation? Uh, I've read the part, read the part where the, egg, the ark goes into exile and there's like tumors and rats and stuff they put inside. That's bizarre. And, I, and, I, and like that was like, I mean, I go back to that conversation all the time. I was like, hey, remember that time you told me about the thing? That was weird. How, how could you ever get sick of right, learning? Now, what I understand is this is not as sexy as this. This is boring compared to this. This flashes at me. Right? When I get high scores on Candy Crush, like it lights up at me and I win stuff. Right? If I have a really nice session in here... That's more like jogging, right? You don't get joggers high on your first jog. You got to jog for a while. I, I'm still waiting for joggers high. I've heard that it exists. It, oh, okay. <laughs> well, thanks, Steve. I guess that's one cue I can throw out. <laughs> right? I'm still eating the Snickers bars waiting for the runner's high. But I, I get it, right? Binge-watching shows on Netflix is easier uh, it's immediately more fun. But we, this is like we're not different than our children. It's hard to explain to them, right? Uh, okay, you've got to study cursive. This is a whole thing. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea how hard it would be to explain to them that wait for the reward it comes later. Apparently kids don't like that answer. <laughs> this is a character-building exercise, right? And then what do we do? I can't study the Bible, really. It's so complicated. They have, like, weird words and stuff in there, and they have threshing floors and stuff. I don't know what that's all about. And so we, just, we give up before we even start. I don't even know where I am in this thing here. 
the last thing, the last loop um, to close all of this, okay, if, if we're going to get better cues and better rewards and, and do it, read your Bible and put a dollar in a jar. If, you, if that's where you're at, do it. I'll give you the dollars. I'm not kidding about <laughs> I'm not kidding about this. Tell me what your favorite candy is, and, and it'll be like when I taught my kids how to go to the bathroom on the toilet. You do the thing, I'll give you a treat. Okay, I mean, if you're on that level, and, and I am on some of these things, treat yourself that way. Be humbler than you are. Because what's better, to be like a little child or to be like the grown-ups that we are? The last thing that's missing in most of our lives is um, meditation. What? Meditation. No, do not become a Buddhist. Okay, don't become a Buddhist Christian like my cousin. That's even weirder. Eastern meditation is all about re, re, like reciting mantras in your head until all reason disconnects and it just becomes this white noise of pure joy or something. I know for most of your moms that sounds amazing, right? Just repeat a mantra until all reason falls apart. But Christian meditation is the exact opposite. It's not an emptying of the mind, it's a filling. Now, the Puritans were all about this. They were like the, in heaven there's going to be classes and they're going to be the ones teaching it. Because it's about filling up. It's like I said earlier, you, go, you take one verse and you, and you start to ask questions about it. You start to add things, one thing to another. Jesus, right, the seven I am's. Let's just think about that for a moment. He's a door and he's bread and he's a gate and, he's, and you go on and all through the whole list. You add and add and add. And what you do is you fill your mind up and then when you pray, you have a ton to say. God, I can't believe that you're this to me. I can't believe that you're bread to me. You're the entrance into the holy land of the Trinity. You're the shepherd. You're the great I am. What, what does that mean? Before you were born, Abraham saw your day and he rejoiced. What does that mean? And before you know it, right, you need, you need to start getting up earlier to have more devotional time because it takes up so much time. And you have tons to say to God in prayer. Meditation. It's said in that verse from Psalms about meditating on the, on the promises. And that's what we're talking about. You add one promise to another. Here's one. Just go and look at all the mountains where God meets man in the Bible. Go find them all one day. And the next day, just think about all the way that that applies to all of you when you come here every Sunday on the mountain of the Lord. This is the missing ingredient. God is our friend. He's your friend. Your soul is knit to his soul. You, you don't make it that way he did. He's brought you into a face-to-face relationship with him. You already have it. He's right there. Are you engaging him or not? That's the thing. Believing that he has is not the same thing as doing. We are full of knowledge, and we lack very much the doing you can't make yourself his friend. He did that. You can't bring yourself to have a, a soul-knit-together relationship. He already did. He's there all the time. Are you listening to him? Are you engaged? Or are you too busy on your phone, too busy looking over his shoulder at the TV in the corner? I think the answer is yes. And what, what's fa- fascinating about this is there's hope. Because, again, he, he doesn't... He, like me, I, I was on a date one time, and the person clearly wasn't paying attention, and I actually got up and left. Thank you, Steve. It was that bad, right? Because what, what do people do? If you have a friend who doesn't ever call you back, do you keep calling them? 
Now, what I love about this, what makes all the difference, is that this particular friend is a little annoying in the sense that he won't go away. He won't. There he is. You, you think you get away, you add some more distraction, you add some more distraction, you add some more distraction, and yet nothing really kind of gives them away. And so then you're like, okay, this guy clearly isn't going anywhere, so what does he want? Well, he wants you to get out of the ghetto. He wants you to go with him because he has a, a fantastic plan, not for your life, for the world. And it starts with the most mundane, tiny little choices about loving other people. This is how he does it. This is the equipping. You stare at him in the face, you get to know more about him, and as you get to know about the grace that is coming towards you from him, right? You see the mercy, you see the forgiveness, you see the joy that he takes in you. What that does is that fills you up, that is what you are full of when you go and you love others. It's really hard to be impatient with people when you know how patient he is. This is the equipping. It's, it's based on us staring adoringly at him. You know what your spouse looks like. Why? Because you love them and you stare at them. Right? It used to be creepy, but now that you're married, it's not. Right? My kids think it is, but that's whatever. I'll keep staring long after they're gone. We would know the face of Jesus more in this world. We would recognize him better if we spent more time as good wives staring adoringly at him. And and if we loved him that much, we would recognize him. We would see him. And, and, And seeing him, we would become like him because that's what it does. Look at how patient he is. How could you possibly be impatient with people? How could you stand the sin of impatience? This is how it's done. He's called us. He's equipped us. This is it. It's time to go. Right? It's time to go now. But as you go out this week, okay, here you are at the feet of Jesus. This is the trick here. You're already sitting at his feet. He's already having a conversation with you. Unlike Martha, you're Mary. You're there. You have the better portion, even though that's not necessarily why you came here. It's not necessarily what you started out thinking about. He's here all along telling you what you need. Now it's time to give thanks to him. Now it's time to praise his name. Now it's time to, to finish that loop, to have a glorious praise to him in prayer, to go out and do real meaningful work. Ladies and gentlemen, this is how we get out of the ghetto. Thus saith the Lord. He is your friend You have a face-to-face relationship with him. If you want to know him better, he lives right here. Put away everything else and take up this. This is how you transform your marriage, your friendships, this church, your community, and the broader culture. Amen. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for calling us, Father, out of the world and for equipping us to love the world as you have loved it, to love one another as you have loved us. Father, we we admit now in our weakness uh, that we are too easily distracted, that we are too easily um, disquieted in our hearts. What, What you have called us to is profound, but very simple. And we pray, Father, that you would give us the strength and the humility to do the simple thing, that we would open the word of God, that we would behold your face, and that we would love you more and that that love would transform us continually every day. We know that you are not gone. We know that you are not distant. We know that you are here with us. 
and that we are your friends because you laid your life down for us. And we pray, Father, that we would remember that, that you would help us to stand on that, and that with that faith, Father God, we would love your Son with all of our hearts and all of our minds and all of our souls. And amen.